Well, hello, Mountain. How's everybody this weekend? A little sunnier than the weather, I hope. My name's Ben. I, I got to meet some first-time guests this, uh, this weekend already who are here for the first time, and I know that there's others who are here that way, too. We just want to say, echo, it's already been said to you, uh, welcome. This is a good place, and you're, you're welcome here. You're in exactly the right place, so we're glad you're here. Today is especially exciting because it's the first time I get to say a big shout-out to our friends at the Edgewood campus. So welcome to our Edgewood campus people who are joining us as well on video today. So we love that idea. Hey, it was so, so exciting. It's what Mountain is. We're a bunch of Christ followers who are trying to do this journey with God. And most of the time we're spread out doing our thing on mission wherever God has you in your school, your, your place of work and your neighborhood. But once in a while we get together in small groups and we do that about once a week. And then every week we also get together in these large gatherings now on the weekend at Bel Air here on Mountain Road and in Edgewood. So exciting to be able to say it. God's been working on this for a long time in our midst, hasn't he? It's been really fun to see it happen. Take a look. We have a little video capture of what happened last weekend during launch. Good people, if you're joining us, we just want you to know we love you and we're one church with you and we can't, you're joining us at a great time because we're, we're going through the story of all stories, the story of our lives, but also how it is meant by God to fold into his one big story. We're using this book right here. If you also are just joining us any campus, um, get the book and catch up. Okay, it won't take you long. Um, but this is, this is the Word of God, selected stories from Scripture, just kind of put together in chronological order, reads like a novel, and it's helping us see how our story fits into God's story. And we've covered so much material here so far. How many read chapter 4 for this week? Let me see your hands. You guys are going to get A's today. Okay, way to go. Uh, if, you know, the, the nice thing is the chapters aren't that long. You can get caught up if you get behind, okay? So let's do a review of what happened in chapter 4. There's so much material, a lot of classic material, and the best way to do that maybe is with a video review, and it's such a cool video. Take a look at this. It'll get us all caught up, and then we'll jump in. Okay, watch the screen again.
After Joseph and his brothers died, the population of Israelites living in Egypt exploded. It grew so large that the new Pharaoh was fearful that they would form an army against Egypt. So he made the Israelites slaves, forcing them to make bricks all day long. Then Pharaoh took it a step further. He issued a ruling that all newborn Hebrew boys should be killed. Soon after that, an Israelite woman gave birth to a son. Fearful he would be killed, she put him in a basket and placed him in the Nile River. The basket floated downstream and was found by Pharaoh's daughter. She raised the boy in Pharaoh's palace as if he were her own child. She named him Moses. Years later, Moses saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite slave. Moses became angry and murdered the Egyptian. Fearing for his own life, Moses fled into the wilderness where he became a shepherd. One day while he was tending his flock, he saw something incredible. A bush that was engulfed in flames but was not burning up. Then Moses heard God's voice coming from the bush. God had seen the suffering of the Israelites and wanted Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses went back to Egypt and met with Pharaoh. He asked that the Israelites be given a short break from their labor to hold a festival to worship God. Pharaoh not only denied the request, but made the Israelites work even more difficult to punish them. But this was just the beginning. To prove that God was on Israel's side, God brought great disasters called plagues on Egypt. God made all the water of Egypt turn into blood, filled the land with frogs and insects, sent diseases to kill the Egyptian animals, gave the people terrible sores, and brought terrible thunderstorms and terrifying darkness. Then God sent one final plague. God protected the Israelites by giving instructions to each family to take a perfect sheep, sacrifice it, and put its blood on the door frames of their houses. The Israelites did what God commanded. At midnight, God moved throughout Egypt, and every firstborn son, including Pharaoh's, were killed. But God passed over every house that had blood on its doorframe. Pharaoh was so overwhelmed that he practically begged the Israelites to leave. So in the middle of the night, after living there for 430 years, the Israelites left Egypt. However, Pharaoh once again changed his mind and sent his armies after the Israelites. They chased them for miles until finally they trapped the Israelites at the edge of the Red Sea. But God instructed Moses to strike the water with his walking stick. When he did, a strong wind blew across the sea, creating dry land for the Israelites to walk across. After they reached the other side, God caused the water to crash back down, drowning all of the Egyptians who were following close behind. The Israelites journeyed far away from Egypt. Along the way, God took care of them, giving them quail in the evenings and flaky bread called manna in the mornings. Many times the Israelites complained about their living conditions, but Moses would remind them of God's goodness and continue to lead them toward the land God had promised them. Okay, so much 
uh, powerful stuff in God's story here in, in chapter 4, what is in our Bibles, the book of Exodus, first part of the book of Exodus. We're going to be talking today about deliverance. Deliverance. Um, a woman in this church sent me her story. I love it when friends do that, just kind of telling what's going on in her life and how God has been a part of that to this point. And her story has a lot of hard parts to it, but a lot of it has to do with her repeated DUIs and her struggle with drinking and how it cost her so much. Her job and her reputation and her children. Till she finally got kind of knocked, as often happens, right, to that place that's kind of we call rock bottom, where she cried out, in a sense, to God, just deliver me. Sometimes the problem is so big and our power to do something about it is so small that our potential for the future just seems minimal to non-existent, right? When the problem is big and our power is small, your potential seems like it's not there. And it seems like your story has a really, a really sad ending. There's another man in this church who's, who's honest enough to admit that the family he grew up in wasn't very healthy and there was a lot of abuse. And now to his horror, he is recognizing the same pattern and cycle of abuse starting to come out and erupt through his own life. He just wants it to stop. He just wants it to, the cycle to stop with him. But he also recognizes the struggle that he's in. He's calling out for deliverance. A man sits at his computer for the 1,000th time and shuts it down, pushes away, feeling disgusted with himself and shameful because he's looked at sites he said he never would again. He feels dirty and ashamed and yet also scared because he knows that he may not be able to say it until next time. And in a moment of daring honesty, he hates what's going on more than he loves the temporary gratification he gets from it and he calls out to God for a kind of deliverance. Deliverance. My dad just had uh, vertigo. He's 85. He's in Minnesota. Got to see him last week. And uh, he had that spinny thing going on where the whole world's spinning, you know, and he just felt like he had to go to the hospital. He's throwing up. I had that earlier this year for three weeks. It's terrible. And whether you've had, you know, just a really bad flu where you can't stop throwing up or like some friends of mine, rheumatoid arthritis or MS or, or some other kind of physical or chronic or uh, uh, some kind of pain. There are times when you just find yourself saying, God, just make it stop. I just want to be delivered. There are, there are so many ways that we recognize the problem is big and our power to do anything about it is very small and the potential for this ending well it just feels like it's minimal or non-existent. You can think of those times in your life, can't you? Those parts of your life right now from which you don't have much power to change your potential, the future situation. That, that burden, that brokenness, that bondage, that blockage that stops you from being able to get where you want to go. And sometimes we just want to say, God, change my story. And the one issue that is sort of like an umbrella under which almost all of these other issues fall, the one problem that's bigger than our power to solve that begs, as we say, as we've been saying in the story, this one earthly dilemma that begs for a heavenly solution. The bondage from which we all need to be delivered. The Bible has a word for 
that sort of covers all the rest of this. You know what it is probably, right? The one big problem from which we need deliverance is called sin. Sin is anything that separates us from God. Sin is anything that screws up the natural way that God intends for he and us to live together. It's anything that separates us from God. Sin isn't a little no-no. It's something that interrupts the relationship that's meant to be. The one that started in the garden in chapter 1 when God brought us together and then we pushed back and rebelled and now we live in this brokenness and this burden that leads to all these problems, the selfishness and the sin and the sorrow and the sickness and all of that garbage. It's this barrier. Sin's a problem. And if you solve all the other problems in your life, let's say you could do that. You You make everything else kind of fall together, but you don't solve this one, you haven't solved a thing. Because your life's still going to suck and you're going to end in a really bad story. So this is a big problem. You have a miserable life and when you die, you will face judgment on your own. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We need a solution. So whether you came in here knowing this, some of us know we have a sin problem. Some of us are like, I don't know, not me. The guy next to me really does. I know he does, but you know, but the Bible says that we all do. And friends, that's what the story is about. People who finally recognize, you know what? I need deliverance. And then to find out there's some good news that there is a God who loves you, who is in pursuit of relationship with you, who's trying to put his family back together. That's what the story is all about. So last week we worked through how God is putting this plan into place to reclaim everything. And he's got this family, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it seems like it's all going fairly well. It goes rough for a while. But then Joseph's family all moves to Egypt. There's about 70 of them that move to Egypt. And then over time, um, that 70 multiplies to like 2 million people over time. But then the plot thickens because a new leader in Egypt rises up who doesn't know anything about Joseph or care about these people. In fact, he sees, hey, I got a lot of help here. And he turns them into slaves. And that's the famous Egyptian slave labor, right? And um, so we, as we open in chapter four or Exodus chapter one, about 400 years have passed since the days of Joseph. And um, the Pharaoh begins to fear these people because there's so many of them. And so remember now this is historians will tell us this is the glory days of Egypt. Okay. This is the Zenith apex of their power and their influence on the, on the world stage. And a big part of that was the slave labor of the Hebrew people. And, and even though the the Hebrews were slaves, they were still flourishing and thriving. And so to slow everything down, that's when he has this terrible decree of this uh, gender genocide, the firstborn male killed, thrown into the Nile River, eaten by crocodiles, right? And from our view, remember, we have a lower story and an upper story we're paying attention to. The lower story is what we see in our lives. That's what it looks like happening to us. That's the earthly perspective. And from the lower story, this is terrible news. And it is awful because it just seems like, for one, it stops God's plan. And for and the second thing, it's just the most worst thing that could happen to me. When, when the worst thing in the world happens to you, it's always good to remember there's another upper story going on that somehow God is at work in. But they don't know that. All they know is that the problem is big. Egypt's the most powerful nation in the world. Their potential, their power is small. They're just a bunch of slaves. And the potential just got worse because now their firstborn is going to be murdered. And so what we're going to focus on this weekend is that God, it's like God is saying through this whole narrative. And as he's saying in your life and mine, he's saying there's some things you've got to know about me. So many people don't have the right view of God. I don't know if you do. But the story is going to help us understand, not just, we don't want to just learn the story. We want to know the God of the story so he can change our story, right? And God says, there's some things you got to know about me. 
If you want your story to, to be changed, if you, if you want deliverance really in your life, there's some things you've got to know about me. We're going to try to get at those today. So, you saw in the video and you've read the story, you remember what happens here. Everybody, you have to throw your babies, all the baby babies in the Nile River. And so, of course, every mom's trying to hide their kids and it doesn't work very well. One mom puts a little bassinet and puts pitch on it and tar and throws it in the river and hides it among the reeds. And she's smart because she knows when the Pharaoh's own daughter comes down to take a bath down there, she's, oh, you know, comes home. Hey, daddy, look what I found. Can I keep him? And ironically, the Pharaoh says, well, what I love this irony. Well, what what danger could one little Hebrew baby possibly amount to? And so this one called Moses, because he was drawn out of the, the waters, what his name means, is raised in the Pharaoh's own palace, his own, his own courts, and he learns how to walk like an Egyptian, Moses does, and, and then this thing happens, he still remembers he's a Hebrew, one day he's out, he's seeing all of his, the stuffing being beaten out of his, his people, and, and uh, Egyptian taskmaster is beating one of his Hebrew slaves, and he steps in to try to intervene, and the next thing he knows, he, he's... He's bashing this guy's brains in and kills this Egyptian soldier and buries him in the sand. I love what the Bible says there in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, Moses, looking this way, looked this way and that way. And then he does the deed. And then he buries him in the sand, walks away, and thinks it's done, thinks it's over, thinks nothing will come of it. When do you do that? You ever do that? Looking this way and that way? You ever do that? You know, students sometimes will have an opportunity to do that on a test. You know, maybe the teacher will never know. Or you're at work and the boss isn't around, you know. It's just, there's lots of situations in life where we, we're, we're tempted to sort of take things into our own hands or do something that, you know, we look this way and that way. No one's home. Wife's gone. Kids are gone. Or you can spin a story and maybe no one will ever actually know that you kind of spun it. Even though it wasn't quite reality, it'll maybe make you look or feel a little better. Or some disciplines you've decided would feed your soul and help you, but no one's really holding you accountable. It's like, so you kind of look this way and that way. It's like, what the heck? The Bible says that our sins always have a way of finding us out. As a pastor, I've seen that so many times. You know, a marriage that blows up or a career that blows up or an education that blows up because someone looked this way and that way. And then eventually when it comes to light and the boyfriend or girlfriend or the spouse or the boss finds out, everything turns upside down. That's what happened to Moses. When it all came out, his looking this way and that way turned out to be not such a good plan. And he's booted out of the palace and now he's a wanted fugitive, lives for 40 years. When you, when we, we, we can make one decision in a moment where we look this way and that way and it changes our whole life, doesn't it? Some of you have that story. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Compare Joseph last week he had a moment when Potiphar's wife came to him. He could have looked this way and that way and said, you know what, no one will ever know. But instead, where did he look? He looked to God. He said, I can't do this in sin against God. Next time you're in a moment where you're tempted to look this way and that way, instead look up. And remember that there's a God who is with you. Not as a watchdog, but he's with you to strengthen you, to prevent you from doing what's going to wreck your life. That's a hint at the first thing we're going to be looking at here in a minute. But let's get back in the story just for a second. Moses, Moses is now no longer the prince of Egypt. Now he's a failure. He's a murderer, a fugitive. He's stuck out in bondage himself from dining with heads of state to, to uh, you know, counting heads of sheep. And that's Moses' life. 
His lower story looks pretty bleak, but we still know God's at work in the upper story. He meets this guy named Jethro. Sounds like one of the Clampets. I don't know. Marries his daughter. And then um, we, we find at age 80, this old guy, old Moses, flabby arms, dusty beard, standing out in the middle of the, of the desert with a stick. And God says, I'm not done with you. I want to make your story. I'm going to change your story. I'm going to bring it into my story again. It's a real comfort to those of us who have a past. I want you to do something for me, Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 9. The cry of, God says, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the Egyptians that are oppressing them. God says, I'm not sleeping on the job. I see what's going on. And I, I know you need a deliverer and I'm going to intervene. I'm going to come down there. God says, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to do something. And Moses is probably thinking to himself, it's about time. Thank you, God. Don't you ever feel that way? God, just come down here and do something. God says, I've heard the cry. I'm going to do something. Look what he says next. So now go. I'm sending you. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring the people out of Egypt. I am sending you. Most of the time, that's the way God does things. When he says, I'm going to intervene, see, I'm going to send you. I promise you this. God's saying that to you right now about something. And a happy, fulfilled, deeply glad person whose story is going the way it's meant to go is a person who knows what God's saying to you and where he's sending you. Do you know the answer to that? Do you know to whom he's asking you to go? To whom he's asking you to be a blessing? Do you know what your mission, your ministry in life is? That's a deep gladness that comes upon us when our story can say yes to that. Moses wasn't so sure. A lot of times we're like Moses, aren't we? He had a lot of excuses. A lot of excuses. I mean, he's talking about the most mighty civilization in the world. Okay? The pyramids were a thousand years old when Egypt, I mean, excuse me, when, when Moses was born. Okay? This is, this is Egypt. And the guy on the throne now is probably Thutmose II, who was a kid who grew up in the palace with, with Moses. And, and, and he got kicked out of there for, for murder. He's wanted. So God's saying, I just want you to march right back in there through security and go up into his face, poke your finger in his chest and tell him, let my people go. Okay? So he's got some questions. There are two kinds of people in life. Exclamation mark people. I love exclamation mark people because you ask them to do something. They're like, let's do it. Sounds great. And then there's question mark people. Question mark people are like, I don't know. This sounds scary. What, what about this? What about that? What about this? And that's how Moses is. Most of us are question mark people. Right? Some of you aren't even sure. You're like, I don't know. That's a question, see? So, yeah. Who am I? Verse, verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who, me? He's got question marks. You know, and he goes on. The whole section here is like the excuses. I, I, I'm not good enough. I'm not right for the job. I can't talk so good. They won't accept me. I'm not a leader. I killed a man. I'm prone to stage fright. You know, my dairy products are about to expire. I got to go get new ones. He's got every... Lame excuse. In fact, he says in, in chapter 4, verse 13, Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Like feigning politeness with the God. Uh, pardon me, God. Please send someone else. I, I know that you're, you're calling me, but actually I, I have a very comfortable life here. I've come to really like the sheep. I know you're calling. He's like, he's like a hobbit. I know you're calling me on an adventure, Gandalf, but frankly, I like it the way things are. Please send someone else. I know people that live their whole life like that. 
a story that's just sort of lame. You keep flipping pages like, when, when are you going to let God lead you into something? It's like page after page. You've got blank pages ahead of you, friends, in the story of your life. It could be epic, a story only God could write. You don't get there by saying, pardon me, Lord, send someone else. And then God says, I, I, I want to send you. And I, and I love Moses' reaction here. He says, okay, forget about how hard it would be to go to Pharaoh. He's now worried about what the Israelites will say. And some of you know what this is like when God asks you to do something, but you're really your greatest concern is how your own kin will receive you and what they will think of you. Here's what he's, he says. Verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, well, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? Then what am I going to tell them? Huh? How about that one, God? And here's an answer that's so powerful, mysterious and classic. Here it is. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. You want to know my name? My name is I am. Tell them I am sent you. And we have here a revelation from God. In the Hebrew, the words I am look like this. And we've transliterated it to English, kind of like Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Moses is saying, no way. And God's saying, Yahweh. <laughs> I am. You don't know who you're talking to. I am the priest. I'm the one who's been who will be and always is. I'm the self-existent one. I'm the one with no beginning, no end. I'm the Alpha, the Omega. And the Hebrew scholars are telling us that this word, Yahweh, I am, means not just I am the one who is. I am the one who is with you. This is about the presence of God. God says there's some things you got to know about me. If you want deliverance, you've got to know some things about me. You've got to know about the presence of God. You've got to know that I am the one who is with you. That's who God is. You've got to know who I am. I'm the God who's with you. And then years later, years later, they would corner Jesus and say, who do you think you are? And he'd say, I'll tell you who I am. John 8, 58. Very truly, I tell you, even for Abraham, for Moses, for all those dudes, guess what? I am. And when he said, I am, what do you think they heard? They heard exactly what Jesus meant them to hear, exactly what he wants you and me to hear, and that is Jesus saying, guess what? I am. I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's an audacious claim that Yahweh has become flesh among us as a deliverer. God wants not only you to know that he is the God who is, but the God who is with you. He wants a relationship with you. That's why Jesus would say, not only I am, but then he says, remain in me. John 15, 4, remain in me and I'll remain in you. We can have a relationship and I will be with you. Matthew 28, I will be with you always. So this is a God who always has been, but now is promising to always be with you and me. To the very end of the age. So no problem. No pain in your story. No, no person can drive a wedge between you and this God. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you have that in your life? Do you live with the presence of God? Not a, not a life where you're looking this way and that as if God didn't exist. But that you're living a life in the presence of God. So that every part of your past you know can be offered to God. Because he's with you every minute. Do you experience God like that in every waking moment? Or do you check in with God and invite him into little windows of your soul? God says you've got to know who I am. You've got to know my presence. You've got to know that I am with you. 
The second thing God says you got to know about me is you got to know not just about the, the, the presence of God. You've got to know about the power of God. You've got to know not just who I am, but what I can do. You've got to know not just that I'm with you, but you've got to be able to know that I am the one true God above all gods. God gave the Egyptians so many opportunities to surrender to the one true God, didn't he? Over and over again, he did. But they didn't listen. They hardened their hearts and they said, I'm going to write my own story the way I want to. We think we're in control. And so God says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Oh, let me just tell you. When God tells you to do something and you say, nope, something's going down. We don't always believe that, but it's true. It's, it's hard to know sometimes because it's hard to recognize because God is so patient with us and gives us so many opportunities and the consequences don't always fall into your lap immediately. But when you tell God no and he tells you to do something, when you harden your heart against the spirit of God nudging and asking and calling and moving and asking you to respond to him and to bring your story into his, when you do that, something's going to go down. And that's what happens in the story. God has a way of kind of getting their attention. And he sends these ten catastrophes. Remember, we're right about one year anniversary from Sandy. Remember how catastrophic that was and widespread and awful that was? Imagine ten of those in a row of that caliber and stature. The Nile River turning to blood. Swarms of frogs. They were all over the place and then they croaked. They croaked and then they croaked. The gnats in their ears and eyes and driving them crazy. Flies buzzing around in their hair and their food when you're sleeping. Livestock dying. Boils all over. Getting real personal with it that way. And then all hail broke loose from the sky thunderstorms and then gnats excuse me giant locusts like cicadas on steroids eating all the crops and everything and then three days of darkness when you hear that i I thought that this was sort of like god dreaming up like oh that didn't get them let me think of another random bad thing a nuisance that would be you know you know what that's not true when you look at this what we've learned now after studying the history here is that each one of these plagues was a very intentional challenge to a God of the Egyptians. It was a very symbolic and powerful statement that each one was being made because in, in, in Egypt there were no atheists, okay? They had lots of gods. They were polytheistic. So when, when Moses comes and says, God says, let my people go, they're like, which God are you talking about? We got lots of gods and we frankly like the gods we have. Look at us, we're on top, everything's going great. Sometimes that's what happens when you feel like your life is comfortable and your upper story is going okay. Why do you need God? Which God are you talking about? So God sends a specific message to say, I am the one true God. You need to know what I can do. And so here's a picture of a God at that time. It's an Egyptian God named Hopi. He doesn't look very Hopi, but this is the God of the Nile River. And they believe the Nile River was a source of life and health and prosperity and so god says bam here's your now river turn it to blood for three days how's that working for you here's another egyptian god named heket pharaoh would have worshipped heket this is a fertility goddess with the head of a do you notice a head of a frog god's like as if god's saying i made frogs you want frogs here's frogs bam there's millions of frogs and then they're dying they're stepping on them they're like how's the frog thing working for you This is the god Newt, goddess of the sky. And before the hail and the thunderstorm, she was helpless. Here's a picture of Ray, the sun goddess, the power of greatness, the god of power and greatness. And God says, I made the sun, the moon, and the stars. I'm just going to shut that, that sun down for three days, let you see who's in charge around here. 
because he wants to say, I'm the God and I have power to deliver. And how's that other God of yours working out for you, by the way? And this is so important for us to recognize for, because we're just, in some ways, we're so much like the Egyptians calling on all these false gods and pretending that our lives are comfortable. We really don't want God to interrupt my little life. See? And I want him to change my story because I've got the God of my, of my good looks. If I just kind of keep myself looking good and feeling good, then everything's happy in my life. Or if I have enough money to pay for stuff, then I feel like everything's good. If I keep my family all intact and we're a happy little family, then I've got that. We have all these gods that we turn to to kind of deliver us. The good life or the good deeds we're going to do. Or some of us have the God of wait and see, which is like, I'm I just going to wait and see what happens when I die kind of God. And each, each God like that is weak and lacks power to really deliver or rescue us when the problem is big and our power is small and our potential is puny. Each one will let us down. And when we're honest about our gods of food and sex and escape and popularity... God will come and say, how's that really working out for you? You need to know You need to know who I am. You need to know not just that I'm a God who wants to be with you, but that when I'm with you, I have power to deliver you. Do you have that? If you do, you'll see God beginning to change your story. You can show me some way in your life where you're inviting the power of the God of the universe to help change your story. God says there's some things you got to know about me. You got to know, you got to know that, you know, my presence. That, that I, you got to know who I am. That I'm with you. You got to know my power. You got to know what I can do. That I'm the most true God. And then He says, "You've got to know, you've got to know about my plan, the plan of God. That God's not just who He is and what He can do, but that He's up to something." He's up to something in his upper story, and that means he's working your lower story into his upper story if you surrender the pages of your life to him. God has so many plans going on. We get to see it in our story today. Listen to this. After the, tenth, after the ninth plague, there's a tenth plague. Verse, uh, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he's going to let you go. And when he does, he's not only going to let you go, he's going to drive you out. He's going to be like, good riddance, go. Verse 4 through 8. So Moses marches right up to Pharaoh, little weak, flabby-armed, dusty-bearded Moses, who's like Mr. Question Mark, is now Mr. Exclamation Mark, because he's seen something about who God is and what he can do. And he goes right up, and he says, this is what the Lord says to you, Pharaoh. About midnight, I'm going to go throughout all Egypt, and every firstborn son in Egypt is going to die. Remember the firstborn? Full circle, consequences come. From the firstborn of you, Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who's at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, and there's going to be some wailing in Egypt, and it's going to be worse than everything that you've ever seen. And among the Israelites, however, their dogs aren't even going to wake up. It's just going to be a peaceful evening. They're going to eat a nice little meal, and they're going to go to bed to let you know what kind of God and the plan of God. And all these officials of yours will come to me bowing down and they're going to say, go, by all means, go. And all your people. And after that, we're going to go. And Moses walks out, ticked. He's come a long way. And when you hear about God's plan, it sounds kind of harsh. It's like, good grief. You know, God, you're going to, you're going to, and you know what? Yeah, what I think the scripture is saying to us for our story, we ought to take note. Rejecting God is a big deal. It's a big deal. There's a lot of people that play fast and loose with God these days. They mock Him. 
And they, they don't believe that there are such things as harsh consequences. Parents, that's why you need to help administer some consequences to your kids so that they get that that's the way the world works. That, so they can relate to God in a way that's consistent. Because God's not to be mocked. You harden your heart against God, God's not okay with that. And He'll give you many opportunities, but there is going to be a price to pay. You can't play with God. He's patient. He'll give you chances. But at some point, judgment comes. And that's what happened to the Egyptians. And God is faithful to His people, though. And He said, here's what you're going to do. When the death angel comes through camp to take out the firstborn of every household, what you're going to do is you're going to set aside a lamb. A perfect, spotless lamb without blemish. And you're going to, you're going to sacrifice it because the blood is going to be crucial. You're going, to, you're going to use it as a kind of marker, a covering. And what, he, what, he, what the scriptures there commanded, you've probably read it. It says you're going to go to the doorposts of your house and, and you're going to mark the blood on your doorpost. You're going to make a mark here on the sides. And I want you to make a mark on both sides. And I want you to make a mark above here. And I imagine as they did, that blood dribbled down and made a puddle on the ground as well. And they marked the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their home. And the death angel came just as God said it would. And for every house that had the blood of the lamb marking the doorposts, death passed over. That meal to this day commemorated called Passover. Everyone inside those homes was safe. You know the rest of the story. The main part of the story we often talk about, which we're going to largely skip over today. The defining moment of Israel's history was after that, they got up and they left in a hurry. The, the event we call the Exodus. They exited Egypt in a hurry. And that's when you find them trapped with the Red Sea in front and the Egyptian army having changed their mind again, bearing down with 600 angry people who just lost a firstborn, bearing down on them with murder in their eyes. And they've got the Red Sea in front and the Egyptian army behind and they are stuck with a big problem and very little power and no potential. And that's when God says, raise that stick up, Moses. He does and the waters part and they go through on dry ground. The Egyptians follow the men and God brings the water and they crush and perish all of them. And the Israelites stand on the other side and for the first time they celebrate and thank and praise God. Why? Because they see that God is a God who is with them, a God who, who can do things and a God who has a future for them, a God whose presence and power and plan is so beautiful for them. God can make a way when there seems to be no way. And friends, what this whole story I think is reminding us of is this, that, the, that we're in exactly the same situation that God's people were back then, that you are. You and I are stuck in a sense. We need deliverance. We know what it's like to have burden and bondage. We cannot free ourselves because we, the Bible says, what we already know, and that is that we're slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin, to our own passions, we're slaves to our flesh, to our false gods. We're slaves to our insecurities and our question marks. We're slaves to our self-made solutions, the gods that aren't working out so well for us. And Scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of that sin is death, eternal separation from God, a story that ends very badly. We're stuck. And back in Egypt, you know, they had a lot of chances. 
a lot of opportunities, but eventually God said enough is enough, and judgment followed. And consequence was death. You know, and the story just tells us that's exactly the situation we're in, that God has been so gracious and he's giving multiple opportunities to every single one of us to sort of say, yes, God, you take over my life. You write the story. You be my God. Right now is one of those moments of opportunity for you to completely bend your will into the alignment with God instead of hardening your heart against him. He's given you so many opportunities and today is one of those. When we ignore those opportunities, eventually Scripture says judgment, death is coming as a consequence for all of us. And you know what? Here's the truth. Death is coming. The death angel is coming for every single one of us. We don't know when, but it's coming. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that God has sent his son into the world to march up to the face of death, poke his finger in his chest and say, let my people go. And God has done that in Jesus Christ. How how does that happen? How how does that happen? Are you covered? Are you protected so that you have the assurance that judgment will pass over you? Do you know that? What's your plan? I know people who say, if I ask them, it's like, well, I think so. I hope so. We'll have to wait and see. I'm like, are you nuts? That's like the dumbest plan I've ever heard. You can be worry-free so you won't be wailing and weeping. You, You can be at a place where you have the mark of the blood of the Lamb. And that's all a believer is, is someone who just says, I want to live forever. So any intelligent person is going to ask, where do I get me some of that blood? Where do I get me some of that mark? And you know what? When Jesus walked up one day, John looked and he said, look, look right there, pointing to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's God's story. This story is setting up Jesus. Jesus is our Lamb. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, For Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed. He's the perfect lamb without blemish. Those ancient doorposts, you look at the marks, you can see it. It's a shape of a cross. And years later, Jesus would leave stained blood marks on a piece of wood to show that he is, in fact, the blood of the lamb that you and I need to be delivered today. And so that's what God wants to have happen in your story, that you would would see who He is and what He can do and that He has a plan for your life and that you, by faith, by simply saying, yes, I need God, I need God. If you say that, then He says, then just trust in the blood of the Lamb to cover all of your sin and to deliver you. And if you say yes to that, your story has a very happy ending. And it gets beautiful right now. And I pray you'll do that this very day. Let's pray. God, thank You for sending Jesus Thank you for for bringing him to us and for him leaving, for leaving that blood on the doorposts of the cross. And now we pray that we'll be marked with that same blood and that anyone here who's not made that decision would do so today. In Jesus' name, amen.